Have you ever had that experience where you've been told to look for something, and no matter how hard you try, you can't actually see it? I had it most recently when Carol and I were trying to get to a retail park in Andover that we'd never been to before. And as we neared where Flatnav said the narrow entrance was, Carol said, it's there. But for love of me, I couldn't see it and I couldn't stop in the traffic. Uh, so we had to taken us past where we were and we had to go around a big long loop again. But that passage I've just read from Mark shows this isn't a new phenomenon. Just before it, Jesus and the disciples have been on that boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus took the opportunity to warn them about the yeast of the Pharisees, meaning their teaching in hypocrisy, as we explained in Matthew 16, 12. The disciples, however, had realized they'd forgotten to bring any provisions for the trip, and they only had one loaf of bread between them. And that's 13 of them in the boat, remember? And like we all do when we know we've done something wrong, they interpreted what Jesus said in the light of their error. They assumed that Jesus was obliquely telling them off for not packing lunch. Yet surely they should have realized by now, bear in mind they'd been with Jesus for some considerable time, that physical food really wasn't an issue with Jesus was around. After all, as Jesus patiently pointed out to them, they'd just seen him feed 4,000 men plus women and children with seven loaves and a few small fish and then seven baskets of leftovers. And bear in mind, when it says leftovers collected, it's not talking about crumbs, it's talking about serious lumps of bread left over. And before that, they'd seen an even bigger crowd, fed with five loaves and two fishes, with 12 baskets of leftovers collected, in Mark 6. And it's immediately after this incident that Jesus then healed the blind man. And this healing is unique, as it's the only time in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't heal somebody completely and at once. So why was it different? Well, through the Gospels, we see that Jesus performs signs, miracles, for a purpose. It might be to authenticate his authority, as with the man who was let down through the roof that we looked at last week. It might be to show God's power, as with the man born blind in John 9, 1-7. Or as a practical illustration of the kingdom of God, such as the, the turning the water into wine at the wedding of Cana in John 2, 1 to 10. And in some ways, this healing falls into the latter case. Yes, it met the man's physical need. But it also illustrates that spiritual sight doesn't always come to us in one go, just as the disciples were about to demonstrate. In the boat, those disciples had been spiritually blind. They were so focused on the physical, the fact they'd forgotten to pack lunch, that they didn't even recognize that Jesus was actually teaching them something spiritual. After the healing, Jesus took the disciples away into Gentile territory around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them who people thought he was. The disciples' replies cover a range of options, but essentially it's Jesus is a prophet of some description. Now, since the old, last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, had been 400 years before that time. And many of the Jews, particularly among the educated elites, thought that Old Testament prophecy had ceased. That was quite radical. But so were the other suggestions. John the Baptist, well, 
He'd been executed by Herod not long before. I have to say, since Jesus was only six months younger than John, I'm not sure how they feel that was meant to work. Or Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, and one of the only two people recorded in the Bible not to have died, but who was taken up into heaven, as we can read in 2 Kings 2. Now, Elijah had long been associated with the messenger who would precede If you look at Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1, these are verses that we find at the beginning of Mark's gospel in Mark 1, 2 to 3. You can see that inference of the messenger coming before the Messiah. But having heard the disciples' answers, Jesus then makes it very personal and very direct in Mark 8, 29. Who do you say that I am? This is the midpoint in John's gospel, sorry, in Mark's gospel. And this question, in many ways, is the crux of the whole book. Have the disciples recognized who Jesus really is? And of course, it's wider, because have we, as the people who are reading the book, have we by now recognized who Jesus really is? Well, Peter's the one who answers in verse 29. He says, you're the Messiah. The disciples have seen enough of Jesus, seen his authority, his power, and his power to recognize that he is God's chosen king. But they're still shaped by their culture and upbringing, and they don't understand what being the Messiah involves, as the next few verses show. Mark 8.31 tells us that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and even after three days rise again. But Jewish thought about the Messiah was very different. They would look at a passage like, for example, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, and we recognize this from Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And there are others like it. Isaiah 11, 1-10, Psalm 2, all talk about the triumph of Messiah. So what was the Jewish expectation? Their expectation was the Messiah would come as a conquering king, a king that would overthrow the Roman occupation and reestablish Israel as an independent and a powerful country again. While the Jews knew passages, obviously, such as Isaiah 53, they didn't see these as applying to the Messiah who is a completely different story. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, 
and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. With all the advantages of hindsight, we can see how they foretell what Jesus went through and did for us. Even though that passage was written some 700 years before Jesus' birth. But for the Jews as a whole and for the disciples, the idea that Jesus could suffer and die was completely incompatible with their image of the Messiah. Their horror at the suggestion, in fact, was so strong that Peter broke another cultural norm. He took Jesus aside and he rebuked him. Now, disciples were supposed to respect their teachers and certainly never to reprove them, still less to do it in public with the crowd around. And Jesus' response shows the seriousness, not just of Peter's breach of disciple-teacher etiquette, but of his way of thinking. Telling Peter to get behind him reminds Peter where he was supposed to be as a disciple, following on behind, learning. And by calling Peter Satan, Jesus calls out both the seriousness of Peter's instruction, as well as that of the other disciples, and its source. Peter had fallen into that same trap that first snared Adam and Eve, and that continues to snare every man, woman, and child on this planet, putting our own desires and wants ahead of what God wants. Satan deserved, sorry, deceived the first people, and he continues to deceive people today, even followers of Jesus if he can. And because we fell for his deceit in the beginning, our nature has been corrupted so that we naturally put ourselves first every time rather than God or on other people. I don't know how much of that you can read, but it's worth looking at online later if you, if you can't. It just shows some of the way that sin has changed our lives. And this putting ourselves first and others second, that's sin. That sin has earned every single one of us, no matter how good we may think our lives are, God's just and righteous anger and punishment. And just in case you're thinking that makes God very unjust because you've never murdered or committed adultery or done any of the other of those big wrong things that we think of as sins, you need to look at what Jesus considered a big sin. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew uh, chapters 5 to 7, he said that calling someone a fool or being angry with them was as bad as murder. You've heard it said, it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's what we think of. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a term of abuse, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus also said that looking at a person with lust is as bad as adultery. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Don't forget, that works the other way around as well. 
women looking at men, or vice versa, whichever way you want to play it. But can we honestly say that we have never done either of these? And what about what Jesus said were the most important commandments when he was asked in Mark, in Mark 12, 28 to 31? He said, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Have you always fulfilled these? Have you always loved God with all your being? Always been obedient to what he wants, including what and how you think and what you say and don't say? Have you always been obedient to God in how you spend your time and your money? Have you always treated those around you, including the people who are different to you, the people that you don't like, no worse than you would treat yourself? If you haven't, you've failed to meet God's standards and you've made yourself liable for judgment. And as we saw in Isaiah 53, verse 6, to deal with our sin and its consequences, Jesus had to come into the world to live a sinless life and to die for us. That was and is God's rescue plan. And Jesus stated that was his purpose in being in the world clearly in Mark 10, verse 45. He said, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, some people ask why Jesus had to die. You know, their view is surely God could have found another way to save us that didn't involve death and suffering for Jesus. Now, before we look at that, let's just briefly remind ourselves God didn't have to do anything to save us at all. He could quite easily and quite justly have left us in the mess that we have made of our lives and our world. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 tells us that is exactly what he did to the angels who rebelled with Satan. God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. But by his love and his grace, God did decide to save some humans. Something we haven't earned, something we don't deserve. Yet God's plan to save us had to reconcile both his love for us and his justice. And that meant Jesus, God's own son, had to bear the penalty we deserve. In Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it's possible, May this cup be taken from me, yet not what I will, but as you will. If it's possible. Wouldn't God have responded to that prayer if there was really an alternative? But he didn't, and there isn't. And Jesus obediently went to the cross. He bore the physical agony of crucifixion, yes, but more agonizingly for him, the sinless Son of Man bore all of our sins. And he bore the whole wrath of God for every one of those sins. Every sin that ever has been and ever will be. The son who had always been had close communion with the father had that relationship broken 
by our sin that he bore. It caused him to cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Lamak Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet it was Jesus' obedience to his father, even in dying in the most shameful way ever devised, that enabled him just a little later to say, it is finished, we see in John 19.30. Jesus did on the cross what we cannot do for ourselves. He paid the price of sin and provided a means for us to be restored to a right relationship with God, to spare us from eternal punishment in hell. And more than that, to make a way for God to adopt us into his family, making us co-heirs with Jesus. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may share in his glory. In Mark 8, the disciples were partially sighted. They had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one from God. But they didn't understand what the task of the Messiah was. And it wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection that they finally understood. But are we spiritually blind, partially blind too? We may claim Jesus as Lord and trust in what he did on, our cross to save, on the cross to save us. But do we see the claim that gives Jesus on our lives, the way we live, on what we do? Are we still setting our minds on human things or divine ones? Let's pray that our lives, eyes will be fully opened, as those of the blind man were, so that we can see clearly. And for those who haven't rec yet recognized even who Jesus really is, those who are completely spiritually blind, we need to pray that our eyes will be open to see their need and that their eyes will be open to see Jesus. But more than that, we need to go to them. We need to go to them and tell them about Jesus. As Paul said in Romans 10, 13 and 15, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call in one whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they're sent? Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that we haven't been sent. It's someone else who should go. Jesus commissioned his church, you, me, everyone who loves him around the world, in Matthew 28, 18-20. You all know this one, I think. But Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus died to save us. And we need to have our spiritual eyes opened to see the need for that salvation in the world around us. Whether it's here in Amesbury, look at the red dot up there, elsewhere in the UK, in Europe, or to the very ends of the earth. The challenge for us as 
Jesus' disciples is to go out there to proclaim the good news about Jesus and make disciples. May each one of us, living in the grace that's been given us through his death on the cross, take up that challenge, be obedient to our Lord's command, and go and tell people, be his witness.